The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are high and lifted up. Worthy is your name. Lord, help us now. Help me to proclaim your name. Lord, I ask that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we might understand this text, and that it might speak to us. We ask for your, the work of your spirit to illuminate, to bring conviction, to bring life. We ask in your name. Amen. We're looking at Isaiah 11, the first 10 verses, and actually if you do have your, uh, a Bible this morning, you're going to need it, because we're going to look at some other passages in Isaiah, not just chapter 11, but we're going to start here in chapter 11. This is a prophecy about Jesus. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, I know a little bit more now of what Nathaniel and Chris and, and Dave have been trying to do and going through the book of Isaiah on Sunday nights, and there is so much in Isaiah. So, and it's like I'm trying to do this in 30 minutes, of, and uh, it's like the old adage, how do you swallow an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. And this is an elephant of a passage, and there's so many themes here. We're just going to have to just plunge in and just jump off the cliff into the water. And chapter 11 literally begins with the word and in the original language. So it's important to understand when something begins with and that it's just flowing. And you have these chapter headings that are inserted centuries later that weren't there. So it's all just part of Isaiah. So chapter 10 just flows right into 11. And so... The context is important. It's kind of like watching Hawkeye on the Disney Channel and you've never seen a Marvel movie. 
Well, if you've never seen a Marvel movie and all of a sudden you just start watching Hawkeye, you're not really going to understand what's really going on. And we were watching the first episode and this young girl's living in New York City and she's under just great chaos as her house is starting to fall apart and there's these monsters that are like flying around the building and and you know if you haven't seen and and you know so you know Kara's a little better at interpreting these movies than me who forgets you know all the Marvel movies she just said oh that's that's the scene from the Avengers it's taking you back to the scene from the Avengers movie I'm like oh light bulb thank you Um, filling in the storyline of putting you into the context of here's how you're going to understand Hawkeye well good narrating will take you backwards and forwards in a storyline because a great author knows where they want to go with the story and what they want you to see and to remember. And so here, this is God's story of redemption. God is the author. He knows all of history because it's his story. He knows the end from the beginning. So he knows all that's going to happen. More than that, he's controlling all of history, and he wants us to see what he's doing, how he's going to save us, what that salvation's going to look like, and there are embedded clues in this text that are going to take us backwards, and some will take us forwards, in the big story of redemption. But a big clue is you just drop in in chapter 11, and it says, there shall come forth a, st- a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And you're like, if you're not familiar with the other parts of the story, this wouldn't mean a whole lot. But the pink elephant in the room is that the story behind the story is that God has made a massive promise in 2 Samuel 7. And this promise was to David, and he promises David that one of his descendants will always be on the throne. And we know that that is going to be the Messiah that God's anointed, his Messiah, is going to come from David's line, is going to be one of his direct descendants. So if David's line is destroyed, and the nation of Israel is destroyed, or mowed down by another nation, which happens in, in the book of Isaiah, and taken into captivity, how can God's promise come true? I mean, that's really what the book of Isaiah is all about, is the, the pink elephant in the room is 2 Samuel 7. How is God going to keep his promise? He's promised that somebody's going to be on the throne forever and you've got Assyria coming like a buzzsaw, taking all the trees like a chainsaw and just mowing them down and going to mow all these nations down. And we're going to see that actually God's the one that's doing it through Assyria. And all that's left is a stump. And yet God's going to do something beautiful through this stump. And so... The book of Matthew actually begins reminding us of the big markers of Scripture. And so if you were to jump into Matthew and read that there's a genealogy and it starts with, and it kind of concludes with all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. So there's a big player, Abraham promised, made to him that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed through his offspring, and then to David. And so he says all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So what does the author of Matthew see as the big markers 
of the Old Testament. Abraham, David, deportation. Big markers in Scripture. Like, if you don't have those, you're not good. Those are the big hooks to, you know, hang, your, hang the rest of the furniture or hang the rest of the clothes on uh, as the markers in Scripture. And so Isaiah has those, the, David and the deportation in view. Now, I just want you to back up to the beginning of Isaiah, and then we'll try to quickly go through a couple of these chapters to explain what's going on, because Isaiah is full of bad news of judgment, and yet in the midst of the bad news of judgment, there's good news of a remnant and restoration and renewal, and this renewal is going to be a lot bigger in the restoration, even the verse that uh, Chris Kinsinger sang, uh, shared, that the ransomed are going to return with singing. This Isaiah, Isaiah 35, 20, it's not just returning from exile, it's something much bigger. It's a cosmic returning. It's global. It's the new heavens and the new earth and God's people coming to dwell. It's something much bigger than just returning back to the way things were. It's something so much better that the people of God are going to. But it doesn't begin well for, for the people of God at the beginning of Isaiah. Isaiah is writing in this, in this from like 740 to 700, give or take a year there. And there's these big kings of Assyria, and they've just got these really scary names. I mean, how would you like to have a name like Tiglath-Pileser? I mean, that Tiglath-Pileser, and then Shamanazer, and Sargon II. I mean, it sounds like a comic book or something. And then, and then Sennacherib. I mean, those are the four big names of the Assyrian kings, and they're all bad news. Uh, and they're all uh, wreaking havoc on the countries around them because the superpower was Assyria. And Israel is afraid of Assyria and is trying to uh, seek alliances and allegiances with Assyria or other countries to avoid uh, being deported and being taken over and being taken into exile. And the people of God are not trusting in the Lord because they fear man. They fear nations. And so much of the book of Isaiah is a call to trust the Lord. Don't not, do not fear what they fear. Don't call a conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Trust in the Lord. Let him be your rock. Let him be your dread. Let him be your all in all. And so he begins the book with verse 2. He's calling heaven and earth. I mean, give hero heavens and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. So the people are in rebellion. And then it just lays it out in the first nine verses of how bad this, you know, this, this sin is. It's a sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate and overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. 
And then the Lord says this, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And this is what we all deserve. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? God said enough. And he rained down, rained sulfur, and, and they were consumed. And that's what we all deserve because we're all, we all, you know, as much as we would like to get around it and paint everybody else as the problem, we all have this sin problem. And the sin problem is from the sole of our feet all the way to our head. It's what we call total depravity. We have this sinful propensity to turn away from the Lord. And God is calling his people to account. But even in the midst of all of this judgment, there's still a ray of hope that just, there's a little ray breaking through the dark clouds. And, and it says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. But they weren't. Because God has a remnant. He's going to do something here. And so the, the end of chapter uh, 1 or leading into chapter 2 is that, well, the end of chapter 1, he makes this promise that Zion shall be redeemed by justice. Do you see that in verse 27? And I just want you to know that's not Zion Williamson, okay? For you that watch NBA, uh, he's not playing right now, but a great basketball player. You read these things like if you're not familiar with reading the Old Testament, and I've been reading Isaiah a bunch, and I'm still trying to understand the clues embedded in the, in the text. Words like holy mountain get used a lot. Words like, you know, uh, Jerusalem gets used a lot. Words like Zion. And you just read those and you might get lost. Right? What is Zion? Zion is Jerusalem. And we're even, you know, we get these clues as we go on in the text. But if you look on here, it's talking about Zion being redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. Well, if you go all the way down to chapter 2, verse 3, or even chapter 2, beginnings, he's talking about, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains shall be lifted above the hills. All the nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, there's Zion again, shall go the law. Now we get the Hebrew parallelism, which always is nice that it can explain the first part. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what is Zion? It's Jerusalem. Well, guess what Jerusalem is? It's the mountain. It's where God's presence is. That's where the temple is. And so when you read these terms, don't, it's easy to kind of get lost as to well, what, is, what is Zion? Zion is Jerusalem, and the reason that all, everything was taking place around Jerusalem is because that's where the temple is. That's where God put his name. And his name, when you pray there, what will God do when you pray to the temple? He will forgive. And how is he ultimately going to forgive? Through Jesus, who's going to come. And so there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. And we're given this promise here that in verse 4 of chapter 2, we get a big pronoun. What's the big pronoun of chapter 2, verse 4? We're introduced to a person. He. He shall bring. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall lift up shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. 
There's going to be somebody who's going to come who's going to bring forth the word. He's going to bring forth the word of the Lord to, from Jerusalem. He's going to decide between nations. He's going to actually bring justice and people are going to stop killing each other. He's going to bring a, a great reign of peace. And the he is the Messiah. It's going to be Jesus. And, and, we're ta- and it, he's talking about a mountain that is this house, the, that the mountain of the house of the Lord, that would be the temple, shall be established as the highest of mountains. I don't think that's literally elevation. It's the idea of highest in importance. And when you hear this mountain idea, it should recall something that Jesus said in John chapter 4 when he's in this conversation with the Samaritan woman and she perceives that you, you're, you might be a prophet. And she says, well, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. Ding, ding, ding. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, well, I know the Messiah is coming, he who's called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's like mic drop right there, you know. I mean, Jesus has now come. And now we see that the holy mountain is Jesus. It's no longer in a location. It's in a person. Okay, did you get that from the call to worship? Can God really indeed dwell in some house that we've built? I mean, even the highest heavens can't contain him. How are we going to contain him in this temple? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And so Zion is, God is going to do something in Zion. Look back at chapter 1, verse 27. And then he's saying he's going to redeem, shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be brought together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. They shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a flower without water, and the strong shall become tender, and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. And so you get these Big word pictures in Isaiah, but the word picture there is a forest fire where these oaks are just consumed and burned down. God is bringing a massive judgment, and he's going to lead Israel to be this little stump. And the interesting thing is, where are we going with all this? Well, the, the imagery is Isaiah 61.3, where this, and Jesus in his first sermon quotes Isaiah 61. In Luke 4, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, 
the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So where's the story of Isaiah going? Oaks of righteousness. Where he's going to mow it all down to a stump. And he's going to have this oaks of righteousness. Let me pull up the picture. I want to show you from my yard. I don't know if you can see that very well or not. This, we have a banana tree in my yard. I've gotten more joy out of this plant. And I just mowed it down recently because the first frost comes and the whole thing just withers to nothing. And so I mowed it down. And last year, before, when frost came, I mowed it down. And this past April... As spring started to come around the end of April and May, this banana tree started to grow. And so it started growing in April, and it grew through September. And let's see how big it got from the stump. That's what it looked like in a few months. I've never seen anything like it. It doesn't produce bananas, but it's this incredible tree, okay, that is almost as high as our house. And it did that from the end of April to through September, I got this kind of like microcosm of, of there, there's Isaiah for you. Stumps, big oaks of righteousness. How's God going to do that? Okay. Well, look over at chapter 6, okay, in our story. Well, while you're moving over there, go to chapter 4, verse 2. We'll just land there for a moment because he makes another prophecy in Isaiah 4, verse 2. He says, in that day, the branch of the Lord, and that's another big imagery of the Old Testament, right? How often is Jesus called the branch? And the branch is going to be ultimately the Lord, our righteousness. And we'll work some of those branch verses in uh, in some of our Advent readings in December. But this branch is Jesus. And that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is who has been uh, recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion. So this is what the Messiah is going to have to do. He's going to have to come and wash away filth and cleanse, and cleanse the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. And I think a better translation is the purging, if you see the footnote. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Now when you get to that, like that has to ring some bells, right? What, what bells is that ringing? It's God is, is saying this Messiah that's going to come is going to be just like the Lord delivered you out of Exodus. And when he delivered you out of Exodus, he was a pillar of fire. And he protected you during the day, and he protected, and he was your light at night, and he protected you from enemies. And he ultimately led you through the Red Sea. And the Messiah is going to do the same thing for his people. And big picture in Isaiah, you're going into captivity. I mean, one of Isaiah's sons, his first son is to be named, a remnant shall return. I mean, isn't that a great name for a child? And so he wants him to take his child with him, you know, in one of these scenes, you know, and just let him, just, just mention, you know, the name, you know, it's to Ahaz, you know. 
And they're wondering, you know, we don't, is the Lord going to protect us? And he's already saying, a remnant shall return, meaning you are going into exile, but a remnant shall return. There's, there's hope in the midst of this judgment. And the idea here is that the Messiah is coming, and the picture here of verse 6 is God's presence. God's presence is going to be with his people. I mean, what will his name be called? We'll get to that in a second. But let's look over now at chapter 6. So when you get to chapter 6, this is where Isaiah receives his calling. He sees the Lord. Um, we're told in, in verse 1 that it was the year King Uzziah died. He saw, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And they called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Jesus just says in John 12 that Isaiah saw his glory. He's ref this is Jesus. If you want to read... You know, John 12, you can see the, where Jesus is saying, this is what Isaiah saw. He saw my glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And he said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And so he is broken. He's humbled, he's in the presence of God, and he's overwhelmed. Like any time God comes near and we see his glory, we are shown for what we are, that we're filthy. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt has taken away, your sin atoned for. And the voice of the Lord, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? I like the us there. Okay, that would be Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then I said, here am I, send me, Isaiah says. And so here's his calling. Go and say to my people, say this to the people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the, in the midst of the land and there shall remain in it. And, and though a tenth remain in it, it shall be burned again like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So when you got to the, you know, there's a stump in, in chapter 11, it should have ring your, ring your bells. That, oh yeah, this was Isaiah's calling, that he was called to hasten the judgment and to bring about the judgment of God that's going to mow the people down with judgment because they rebelled against him and they're going to keep listening, but they're, they're going to be hardening their hearts to your message, Isaiah, and you just be faithful and the Lord's just going to take them down and there's this description of a burning and a stump remaining, but God has a remnant, and it's going to be his holy seed, and it's going to be a stump. But out of that stump will be the great promise of second, 
Samuel 7 of David, this descendant of Jesse, is going to reign. And so we do have a promise in the midst of that. Now look over at chapter 7 as we get the, the next promise here of the Messiah. And this is Ahaz, who is wanting to trust not in the Lord, but he's wanting to trust in alliances. And he's got the... Uh, he, there's chaos going around him from these other countries. And you have Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. They've come up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. He's got big armies coming to take him out. And the Lord says to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He sounds all pious here. He's not. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, which is interesting that the reply that he gives isn't just to Ahaz, it's to the house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Then the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now you gotta love when you get, when someone is a big enough name in our culture that they get a one-word name. You're just going to call his name Emmanuel. And when you say Emmanuel, you, you kind of, well, that's like dropping the microphone. I mean, I love to tell the Jehovah Witnesses when they come to my door, and they like to come around Christmas. I always say, Emmanuel, Emmanuel, you know, God is with us. And, you know, the very essence of Jehovah Witnesses, they deny Jesus is God. And I say, well, what do you do with that? I mean, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And you think of some of these names in, in, in our culture, they're just like one word, and you know who they are. Aretha, Adele, Prince, Bono, Sting, you know, you could go on and on, Beyonce, Madonna, Seal, Cher, Drake, Usher, Oprah. I mean, they all get the one name. They just get one word and you, know, they, you don't even need a last name. It's just, you just know who they are. They've made such an impression. And then you've got these people in history like Plato, Socrates, Confucius. They don't need a last name because they're such a big name, right? Then you've got like, you know, if you want to talk about the greatest soccer player, you just say Pele. You don't even have to say the rest of it, you know? Maradona. Or your great author like Homer. Well, Jesus, we're told, is the name above all names. His name is Emmanuel. And the good news is he comes just like this pillar of fire. He comes to be God with us. He's coming in the flesh. And all flesh shall see it together, we're told in Isaiah. And to him, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That is the, the prophecy that is made about him is a virgin shall conceive and shall uh, bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. I was studying that this week and had the privilege to share with a family member. You know, I was just sitting reading and they said, well, tell me what you're reading. I said, well, I'm actually just reading a commentary of Isaiah. They said, well, what is that? What's a commentary of Isaiah? Well, I'm reading about this, this passage where it says a virgin shall conceive and, and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel. And she says, you know, I've, I've heard that before. What, is, what does that mean? So I, I proceeded to say, well, the whole point about the virgin 
conceiving here and bearing a son is that God is doing something that shows that he's the one who has to save us because we're all born with Adam's sin. We all have the corruption. You don't have to teach anybody how to lie, how to be selfish, how to look out for number one. We all have a propensity towards self and a propensity to move away from God. It's like the magnet has been flipped and we naturally repel God. And this, this, this magnet just wants to beep, go the other direction. And so that is in us, but God is going to do something. He's sending the Messiah through a virgin-born child that will be born without the stain, without the pollution, without the corruption of original sin that is passed along generationally. And we're, we're all born and guilty with Adam's sin, but not Jesus. And so the idea of the Messiah promise here is the Messiah who's going to be the Lord our righteousness is going to save us by not being contaminated by sin whatsoever. He's going to be this perfect Messiah. And so if you look over at chapter 1 or chapter 9, we're told a little bit more about the Messiah. We're told in chapter 9 that this Messiah is going to come, and it says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light, on them has light shined. I mean, if you look at the last verse of chapter 8, it says, They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. I mean, have you ever been in darkness that's so dark that you can't even see your hand in front of your face? That's pretty dark. No cell phone to give you any light, you can't see anything. That's what Isaiah is describing of the people's sin and their blindness. And Isaiah 59 describes them like groping along the wall and they're just completely blinded and can't see anything. And in the midst of that darkness, in the darkness of the darkest night, there's going to be a dawn. And the dawn is going to break and the dawn is Jesus the Messiah is going to come. In the midst of this darkness, and as Jesus comes, he comes as the light of the world. And that's how John 1 begins to describe him, how it's this light that comes. And the light is the light of men. And the darkness has not overcome it. And so Jesus is going to come, and we're told about how he's going to come in verse 6. He comes as a baby. He comes to us as a child is born and a son is given. He has a human origin. He's got a divine origin. He's birthed and born of of a virgin, yet... He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. A son is given. And then we see what this son is going to do, what this baby is going to do. He's going to be this incredible, perfect Messiah. The government's going to be upon his shoulder. His name is going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This king that is coming, the increase of the government of peace, there'll be no end on the throne of David. There it is. 
and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it, to fulfill the great promise that God made in 2 Samuel 7 to David, that he would have a king on the throne. Here he is. He's going to do this, and he's going to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now, we look over at chapter 10. And in chapter 10 we have what God is doing. And what we have in chapter 10 is God is bringing Assyria to bring judgment on Israel and on Judah. And God can use wicked people. He can use wicked nations to accomplish His purposes. And we see that in Isaiah. And yet they're responsible for their sin. But we see in in chapter 10, verse 5, that he's speaking of Assyria, and he says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. So it's God working through this pagan, wicked nation, and who is he bringing judgment upon? Well, in verse 10 to 12, he says, My hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria. Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her, ima- and her images? So God is going to bring judgment on Jerusalem. He's going to mow it down and, and they're going to be taken into captivity. They're going to be uh, pillaged by Assyria. And then he says in verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Syria and the boastful look in his eyes. And so God will judge Assyria, even though he used them to to bring about his uh, designs, they are responsible for their sin and God will judge Assyria. And we see that in verse 20 to 25 of this chapter, that God has a remnant, a remnant of Israel. And the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So God is doing something. He's mowing it down, yet he has a remnant. And then at the very end of the chapter, the last little picture here of the the cartoon, if you think of a picture, is the whole, behold, the the Lord God of hosts will lop the bows with terrifying power. The great in height will be honed down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. And so God is bringing judgment and he's leveling all down and and there shall come a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So right in the midst of that, it just carries on in conversation and 2,700, you know, hundreds of years later, 700 years later, there's going to come a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And notice how verse 2 and 3, we have the sevenfold endowment, a divine endowment. The Spirit of God is going to come upon the Messiah, and we're told that happens at his baptism, and the Spirit comes upon him without measure. And so count, 
count up to the seven. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. One. The Spirit of wisdom. Two. The Spirit of understanding. Three. Spirit of counsel. Four. Might. Five. Knowledge. Six. And fear of the Lord. Seven. It's the fullness. God's Spirit will be upon the Messiah. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. You see... This Messiah is going to be the perfect king, perfect judge, perfect priest, perfect prophet, perfect human. He has spiritual insights. He, he perfect spiritual insights. He has practical abilities, able to rule with excellence. He is what we need. Is he what we want is the question. And we're told that the Messiah will delight in the fear of the Lord. And that's the main requirement to not be partial. I'm going to have to bring this ship to a close. I still got a lot more to go. Let me just close with this about the Messiah. The Messiah is going to come and bring this perfect government, perfect peace, perfect justice, and what he's going to do is renew the creation. And so what you see is a renewed Eden, and you see the wolf laying down with the lamb and the leopard with the young goat and the calf and the fattened calf together, little child leading them, um, this imagery of the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The imagery here is all of a renewed Eden. And we know that there was a, a serpent in the garden that wreaked havoc. Well, here that, that won't happen. There's the promise that, that all shall be well in the animal kingdom. And God is, is making all things perfect. And God's knowledge will be full as the waters cover the sea. And we're told that his resting place will be glorious in verse 10. And it's for all the nations. And this is quoted in Romans 15, 12 about Jesus and how the gospel now goes to all the nations, to the Gentiles. And so the response of God's people to what God is doing is to be thankful. That's what chapter 12 is. It's all a hymn of thanks is I give thanks to you, O God, for though you were angry with me, your anger has turned away in Jesus, and now you comfort me. And now behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, 12.2. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. Has he become your salvation this day? Are you trusting in the Messiah? Are you trusting in the one who has done, who's done it all to save us, is your joy in Him. Let's pray. Father, help us to see those wonderful truths. Help us to drink them in and to praise You, Lord, all the more for our salvation. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.